Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.20, Maud of Wales, Princess Harry. I hope that you enjoyed the series on Queen Sophia of Greece, our first in this run of granddaughters of Queen Victoria. One of my favourite parts of her story was going into a bit of modern Greek history and looking at how dropping a woman with Anglo-German heritage into an emerging nation affected the course of its history. Well, in this coming series, we're going to look at another woman who married into a new kingdom that doesn't get much coverage in mainstream Western history. Maud a daughter of Bertie, the Prince of Wales, and the future King Edward VII. Now, I'm going to make a brief admission before I start this series. I don't speak Norwegian. Now, I'm sure you took this as a given, but this does rather affect my ability to gather source material for the series, as not much is available in English. Therefore, I'm expecting this series to be a little shorter than one might expect, and perhaps not as detailed as I would like. I have heard, though, that a Norwegian TV channel is doing a The Crown-style series on Maud and her husband, and I desperately hope a subtitled version makes its way over here. But before we get going with it, I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters that keep this show on the road. If you would like to join all of my amazing patrons and support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And speaking of begging for money, I have one other favour to ask you. Long-term listeners to this show will remember that two years ago, I did a 46-mile bike ride through London and the Surrey Hills for charity. Well, now I've somewhat upped the ante, and I'm going to be riding for 100 miles, that's 160 kilometres to the metrically inclined of you, in support of a charity called Centrepoint. They help homeless young people get off the streets and learn valuable skills so that they can restart their lives and get through some really tough times. I'm doing this as part of a team from work, and we have a target of raising £5,000. Anything you could give would be incredible. 
And if you could mention your name with your donation, then I'll know it's from you and I'll be sure to give you a shout out on the show. There's a link in the show notes and on the Facebook page. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Although we're covering her second, Maud is actually the eldest of the granddaughters of Queen Victoria that we will be covering in this series, though only by a few months. She was born on the 14th of June 1870 in her parents' home of Marlborough House, a very grand residence next door to St James's Palace and just down the road from Buckingham Palace. Her name is actually rather interesting as it broke from family precedent. There were no Mauds in either side of her family. Her name instead harked back to England's Anglo-Norman past, to the various Queen Matildas that sat on the throne in the 11th and 12th centuries. Shout out to the Queens of England fans out there who remember the four Matildas that I covered in the early days of that podcast. While her cousin Sophia had been born during wartime in the restrictive conservatism of 19th century Prussia, Maud grew up in a rather different environment. Now, we've covered her parents, Bertie and Alexandra, quite a bit during this series, as they've frequently popped up in other people's narratives, but I think it's worth doing a quick introduction slash recap for them both. Bertie was the eldest son of Victoria and Albert, but had always grown up rather in his sister's shadow. Everyone knew that one day he would be king and ruler of the largest empire the world has ever known. That was an incredible amount of pressure. Yet he also grew up knowing that he was, frankly, rather a disappointment to his parents. He had been born to a family that valued academic achievement, and that, by and large, excelled at it. Bertie didn't. He was forever in the shadow of his sister Vicky in that regard. What he did have was a larger-than-life personality, a zest for the finer things, and a ready charm but his upbringing was supervised by his father, who imposed a demanding regime under which he chafed. Even as a teenager, he had a reputation for being an inveterate womaniser and a tractor of scandal, and so when it came to finding a wife for him, Victoria and Albert had quite the task on their hands. What they needed was someone from a suitable family for a future British queen, someone pretty enough to hold Bertie's interest, someone strong enough to handle his transgressions, and big enough to forgive them. This didn't leave a whole lot of options, but eventually they chose Alexandra. She was the daughter of King Christian IX of Denmark, a man whose children farried so far and wide that he earned the nickname of the father-in-law of Europe. The whole thing almost collapsed before it began. Bertie rather dreaded the idea of marriage. Monogamy wasn't and never would be his kind of thing, and no sooner had the engagement been agreed than it emerged that he had been sleeping with an actress called Nellie Clifton. His father took the news incredibly badly, so much so in fact that Queen Victoria blamed Bertie for sending him to his grave. What a thing to say to your child. But married they were in 1863, and together they had six children, Albert Victor, 
George, Louise, Victoria, Maud and John, though the latter died shortly after being born. Bertie and Alexandra were very loving parents. Their children's lives were carefree and idyllic, spent on various royal estates. As you might expect, their lives were primarily the concern of Alexandra. She was a rather smothering mother, lavishing affection on her children and expecting to receive it back in equal measure. She also jealously guarded her family's privacy. A well-meaning act, but one that meant her children had very little exposure to the outside world. That said, they did have playmates, spending a great deal of time with their cousins, the Tex, children of Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge. In her early years, Maud was something of a tomboy, and was given the name of Little Harry after her father's friend, Admiral Harry Keppel, a dashing naval officer and hero of the Crimean War. While the boys were given the sort of rigorous education that one would expect, the girls' upbringing was rather more relaxed. Their parents did not encourage academic excellence in their daughters as much as Victoria and Albert had, instead focusing on the more traditionally female tasks, such as philanthropy and homemaking. Don't get me wrong, they weren't raised to be total dunces, but it certainly wasn't an intellectual upbringing. To those around them, the main characteristic that all the girls seemed to share was a certain shyness. They were called the Whispering Wales Girls. But again, this meekness almost certainly came from the fact that they grew up in such a sheltered environment and encouraged to be good, dutiful, young Victorian women. Of the girls, Maud seems to have been the most intelligent, especially excelling at languages. Indeed, she was apparently the only person in the whole royal family who could speak fluent Russian. Perhaps fitting of a Russian speaker, she was also excellent at chess, and even collected vintage chess sets as a child. She was also reportedly the best-looking of all her siblings, though she was outshone by some of her cousins in that regard. She was a slim, dark-haired beauty, but had also inherited something of her father's bouncy personality, at least in private. Her eldest sister Louise married quite young. Like her namesake aunt, she eschewed the normal practice of marrying a foreigner and instead chose a Scottish nobleman. With her middle sister Victoria seemingly uninterested in marrying, attention at court turned to Maud as the next hottest prospect on the marriage market. Her first love was one of her childhood playmates, Prince Francis of Teck, a handsome young man of the same age. He had grown into a rather dashing and scandalous young man. What do I mean by that? Well, he gambled so much that he lived perpetually on credit, and he was expelled from school for, and I quote, throwing his housemaster over a hedge in order to win a bet. Luckily for Maud, he wasn't much interested in her. He had his sights set on an older married woman, because of course he did. Utterly enthralled by this bad boy, Maud sent him a mountain of love letters, but to no avail. Luckily for her, before he could be tempted by this innocent young girl, Francis was packed off to India, so that his embarrassing behaviour could be kept out of the society pages. Shu was then on the other foot when she rejected the advances of Prince Nicholas of Greece, Constantine's brother, and as we found out in the last series, this too turned out to be a blessing in disguise. This rejection may have had something to do with the fact that Maud had inherited her mother's hatred of all things German. At one point, she was linked with another cousin, Grand Duke Ernest of Hesse, Alice's son, but she rejected him out of hand, 
saying, quote, No one would make me marry these German vandals. Imagine having to live in Darmstadt one's whole life. I hate every sort of German, and I must say that they are such a vulgar people. This pickiness meant that Maud reached the spinstery age of 25 and was still unmarried. But soon a man came along who was a good match. Yet another one of her cousins, Prince Karl of Denmark. He was the second son of the Danish king and a first cousin of hers on her mother's side. This meant that they had long known each other and had spent their childhood summers on bike and pony rides together. He was a tall man, standing over a foot higher than Maud, and reputedly quite the handsome fellow. At the age of 14, he joined the Danish navy, but the two kept in touch, and it was long rumoured that they carried a flame for each other, and that he kept a photo of her by his bedside aboard ship. In 1895, on another family retreat to Denmark, he proposed marriage to Maud. As the second son of a minor royal house, he wasn't an ideal match for the daughter of a future British king. Indeed, one person rather uncharitably described him as merely the, quote, sub-lieutenant in a miniature navy. But Maud loved Carl, and he loved her, and that was enough. So she said yes. In her letter informing her grandmother, Queen Victoria, about her engagement, she wrote, quote, Though I know that Papa and Mama have already written to you to announce my cousin Carl, I thought that you would like to hear from me myself, dear Grandmama, as you have always been so very kind to me, and I wanted to tell you how happy I am, and I hope you approve of my choice. All the dear relations in Denmark were delighted when it took place. You can see even more of her love for Carl in a letter to a friend, where she said that he, quote, really liked me three years ago, but I never thought it would last, and that he would forget everything when he went to sea. But instead of that, when he met me again, it became even more so, and finally ended in this happy way. For his part, Carl was equally smitten. He wrote to a friend, quote, I will tell you I am honestly suffering from a terrible disease. I am very much in love, and you know that I for many years have esteemed one of my English cousins, and now she is more charming than ever. I proposed to my cousin Maud, and she was so sweet and charming, and said yes. He later described himself as, quote, the happiest individual who exists on this earth. In the first of his name changes, Maud insisted that he go by the anglicised version of his name, Charles, a sign really of the great difference in social position between the two. They were of similar rank, but she was a daughter of the British Empire, while he was merely a Danish prince. Charles was due to set to sea for five months, and so nothing as frivolous as a royal wedding could prevent him from doing his duty. Therefore, the wedding was scheduled for the summer of 1896. It was a fairly simple family affair, rather than a great state occasion. Victoria was not in a fit state to attend a big wedding. In any case, this was the marriage of a younger daughter of the Prince of Wales to the grandson of the King of Denmark, hardly the sexiest match of the age. Indeed, the King and Queen of Denmark didn't come along, as they were in their mid-seventies. But Charles's parents were there, as were a litany of the bride and groom's cousins, including Constantine and Sophia from Greece, and Fritz and Vicky from Germany. It took place, for once, not at Windsor, but at Buckingham Palace in London on the 22nd of July. As befitted this relatively small ceremony, 
Maud wore a simple yet elegant dress of ivory satin without any jewels, wearing the same veil that her mother had worn on her wedding day. Charles was accompanied by his brothers and dressed in his naval uniform. After lunch in the state ballroom at the palace, and an afternoon reception thrown by her parents at Marlborough House, Maud left with her new husband for Sandringham for her honeymoon, where they had been given Appleton House as a residence as a wedding present. This gift, though, did come with the stipulation that she come and use it at least once a year. She was being let go to a foreign land, but she was never to be allowed to forget her British roots. But there was no chance of that. Maud was deeply attached to her homeland and extremely loath to leave. Indeed, if it weren't for the fact that she was so deeply in love with Charles, I think that she would have followed her sister's example and married a British subject. She wrote around this time, quote, I actually think I'm dreaming, and I cannot understand that I am married and have a husband, and even one that is so good-looking. We are happy, and my Charles behaves like a real angel to me, so nice and selfless, and we have not had one quarrel so far. She also adored Appleton. Quote, I am going to hate leaving this heavenly little place, and get depressed just thinking about it. She meant what she said. Their honeymoon lasted five months as she struggled to say goodbye. They spent their time riding their bikes and ponies, visiting local schools and seeing family members. All the while, their foreign relations were gathering with Charles's family at Bernstorff Palace, just outside Copenhagen, eagerly awaiting their arrival. Eventually, finally, just before Christmas, they set off for Denmark. The Danish people greeted her with a mixture of excitement and scepticism. In many ways, this was a kind of a homecoming. Indeed, the Danish king, Christian IX, was a grandfather to both of them, and in a toast to them proclaimed, quote, As my dear daughter Alexandra has won all the British hearts, so may my granddaughter win the hearts of the whole Danish nation. But at the back of everyone's mind, there was understandable doubt. Was this homesick daughter of the British Empire, this most English of royals, ever going to be happy in Denmark? Maud's first impressions of Denmark were mixed. She wrote to her grandmother, quote, We had a grand reception on our arrival, which was rather alarming, and I had to go around and shake hands with everybody. And we drove in gold carriages in procession the streets, which were gaily decorated in our honour. Several dinners have been given for us, and we have had numerous deputations and charming presents. It has been great trouble in finding and arranging all our things. But now, at last, we have got our rooms tidy and comfortable, and we like the house very much, though it is rather damp just now, as the days are so short and the weather is abominable, so raw and damp and dreadful cold winds. Perhaps if she'd arrived in the summer as planned, and not in the Danish winter, she may have gotten a better impression. This home that she describes were apartments in the Bernstoff Palace, a residence owned by King George of Greece. She did her best to make it homely, filling it with trinkets from home and family photographs, but she longed for Appleton and the life that she had left behind. 
This only became more acute when Charles left just a few weeks later to resume his naval career. She wrote back home that, quote, I think of all of you almost constantly, and sometimes I feel so depressed and full of homesickness, and when he is away, it is terrible. Their living was, relatively speaking, quite modest. Danish law prevented state funding from going to the grandchildren of the monarch, meaning that they had subsisted on his naval salary. But luckily, Maud was not an extravagant woman who had little wish to throw herself into Danish society. Indeed, her lack of engagement with the court in Copenhagen rather got her mother's back up. Quote, she must on no account forget that she married a Danish prince and a naval man, and he owes his first duty both to his country and his profession. Alexandra was a woman for whom duty mattered above all other things. She remained loyal to her husband despite his constant affairs and embarrassments, and loved her new country with the fervour of an evangelist. She fully expected that her daughter would do the same, and was disappointed to discover that she could not. Indeed, Maud was only truly happy when she was back at Appleton. During a visit in 1898, she wrote to her friend, quote, I am having a delightful time here in my own beloved country. I have become quite fat and sunburned, and you will never know me again. All the trees and flowers out, so delightful, and makes it very hard leaving again. And this was very much her life as a princess of Denmark. Summers spent in England, and the rest of the time spent complaining about the Danish weather and yearning to be back in England. In time, she would also spend the harshest of the winter months at Appleton as well, as she found that the cold weather in Denmark aggravated her bronchitis and neuralgia. She would occasionally be joined by her husband, but his duties at sea kept him very busy. One thing that was conspicuously absent from their lives were children. Given that he was the second son of the Danish king, he was not expected to inherit, and therefore neither would his heirs. This, then, took all of the pressure off having kids, and it seems that she never felt under much obligation to have a lot of them. Indeed, it was not until July 1903, at the age of 33, that she gave birth to what would be her first and only child, Alexander Edward Christian Frederick, named for her mother, father, father-in-law and uncle-in-law, respectively. As one might expect, she gave birth in England, where it was thought that she would be more comfortable. Few thought that this boy would one day become a king of Denmark. And he wouldn't. Not of Denmark, at any rate. Okay, it's time to break away from our story and do a quick primer in Scandinavian history. Right, so first thing, there is no good definition of what exactly Scandinavia is, but for the sake of this show, we're going to talk about the core three modern Scandinavian nations. Norway, Denmark and Sweden. Yet these three nations have not always been independent of each other. Indeed, the story of this region is one of a struggle for regional domination. Denmark emerged in the 10th century, and Sweden came a little later in the 12th century. And Norway? Well, Norway is complicated. Arguably, it's the oldest of the Scandinavian kingdoms, first united as a people by the Viking king Harald Fairhair. During the Middle Ages, Norway prospered, and in 1397 entered into a dynastic union with Sweden and Denmark under the Kalmar Union. However, this was very bad news for Norway, as Denmark emerged as the economic powerhouse of the Kalmar Union, making Norway into something of a backwater. 
Sweden managed to extricate itself from the Union, a Swexit, if you will, but when Norway attempted a Norwexit, it was attacked by Denmark and forced to stay in. During this time, all political, cultural and economic power was centred in Copenhagen, leading Norwegian historians to refer to this period as the 400-year night. During the Napoleonic Wars, Denmark-Norway sided with the French after the British destroyed its fleet at the Battle of Copenhagen. This was a disaster for the kingdom, as a British blockade led to mass starvation. Under the Prince Treaty of Kiel at the end of the war, Denmark was forced to cede Norway to Sweden. As one might expect, the Norwegians weren't too thrilled with this arrangement and rebelled, electing their own king and parliament and adopting a liberal constitution. The resulting war turned into something of a stalemate, leading into the Convention of Moss, whereby Norway accepted rule by the King of Sweden, but was allowed to keep its liberal constitution and broad local autonomy, including its own parliament. Like many nations during the 19th century, Norway saw an upsurge in romantic nationalism, and broadly speaking, Sweden was not too precious about making concessions to their partner nation. It was in this period that Norway adopted its own flag, and the loose restrictions that Sweden placed on Norway continued to loosen through the 19th century. This peace led to a prosperity the kingdom had not seen in centuries, but despite this there were simmering tensions under the surface. Norway had one of the largest merchant fleets in the world and depended on foreign trade, but Sweden had a protectionist trade policy. Norway was also far more liberal, extending property and voting rights to women far in advance of most other European nations. This led to what can only be described as one of the politest revolutions in history. In short, Norway passed a law demanding to be able to have its own embassies abroad. The Swedish king, Oscar II, vetoed it. The Norwegian government, in protest, resigned en masse, and King Oscar was not able to form a new one. This meant that Oscar was not able to rule Norway, and so the Parliament demanded that the Union be dissolved. Not wanting to cause a civil war, Oscar agreed. As a gesture of good faith, Norway offered Oscar the opportunity to handpick a member of his family to become the new king, but he refused as he did not recognise Norwegian independence. Like we saw in Greece, there was no appetite for Norway to elect one of their own to become king, as they would have no inbuilt legitimacy as a royal. So they needed someone with pre-established royal blood. Norwegian foreign policy was inclined towards the UK, so they weren't keen to go down the German route. So this left the Danish royal family as the obvious place to go. And the obvious one of those to choose was Charles. He was a well-liked and honourable man. He was in his mid-thirties, so able to offer a long and stable reign. And he had a son, so had already secured the succession. And Alexander was young enough that he could grow up as a Norwegian. And, most importantly to the British diplomats advising the Norwegians, he was married to a British princess. He and Maud were absolutely perfect candidates to become the first recognised kings and queens of an independent Norway since the Middle Ages. There was just one problem. He didn't want the job. Charles was a very proud Dane. He had spent his entire life in the service of his country, and wanted nothing more than to have a long, quiet career in the Danish navy. He knew nothing of Norway, 
of its culture and proud history, not to mention what it would take to found a brand new dynasty from scratch. Maud was just as unkeen on the idea. She hated Danish winters, imagine her in a Norwegian one. She had managed to find a good balance in her own quiet private life, and she would not be able to maintain that if she were to become Queen of Norway. Yet, they were people for whom duty was very important, and were under a lot of pressure from Norway and from the British, especially from Maud's father, King Edward, who began a concerted publicity drive to make his daughter queen. He wasn't just motivated by familial loyalty. He believed that Kaiser Wilhelm was manoeuvring behind the scenes, lining up a member of his own family to take the throne should Charles refuse it. Edward would not let that happen. And so, at the insistence of her family, Maud and Charles were convinced to take the Norwegian throne. But they had one condition. It had to be with the consent of the Norwegian people. This was a very canny move. There was a strong Republican feeling in the country, and given that he had no inbuilt legitimacy as a Norwegian ruler, Charles felt it vital that he be able to start his reign on a wave of popular support. And who knows, maybe the people would refuse him, freeing him from this obligation they had never really wanted. The result, though, was convincing, with 75% of the electorate voting, and the new monarchy winning by 259,563 votes to 69,264. The people, resoundingly, had spoken. They wanted Charles. The Norwegian parliament, the Storting, therefore offered him the throne officially. He responded by telegram, quote, My wife and I call down on the Norwegian people God's richest blessing, and will consecrate our future life to its glory and prosperity. In an attempt to make himself more Norwegian, Charles used a trick right out of the medieval playbook, and changed his name to one that harked back to his nation's glorious past. He therefore became Harkon Seventh, a name that had not been in use by Norwegian kings since before the Kalmar Union. He also changed his son's name to Olaf, another Old Norse name. But Maud didn't follow suit. She was, to her core, a British woman. She'd been given this name by the son of Queen Victoria, who is now himself the King of the United Kingdom and ruler of the British Empire. If it was good enough for them, it would be good enough for Norway. And it is here, with more becoming Queen, that I shall leave you for this week. Next time, we shall see her and her family arrive in Norway and attempt to found a dynasty. Maud was an intensely private woman. How would she adapt now that she was a queen? (laughs) 